Welcome, folks, to the First Things Podcast. Rusty Reno here at the Editor's Desk. We're recording the next installment of the Editor's Desk, the regular First Things Podcast that looks at material published in First Things Magazine, which if you are not a subscriber now, you really need to be to go to firstthings.com and become a subscriber to First Things Magazine. And I have with me today Philip Pilkington, an economist who in our December 2022 issue wrote The Dead End of the New Left. Welcome, Philip. Hi, Rusty. Thanks for having me. Great. The theme here is the conundrum of the left, or as you put it, the dead end that they've come to. But I guess before we talk about the dead end, listeners need to know something about what makes the new left new. Well, I suppose they're new because they're not old, would be the short answer. (laughs) (laughs) Not very satisfying answer. But I think there is something there. I mean, so what's come to be called the old left now is the is the initial communist left, I'd say. Obviously, there is an older left than that, Robespierre and the Jacobins and so on, but they've been memory-holed since the rise of Marxism. The The old left was effectively the, the old communist left. I suppose you'd call it now the Leninist left, the left that was associated with the Soviet Union, with the USSR. And the old left came to consciousness, I, well, I mean, it goes right back to Karl Marx, of course, to Das Kapital and the, the Communist Manifesto, but it really becomes an articulate political movement, I think, basically in the 1900s, or, or the, sorry, the, the early 1900s, so 1900s, 1910s, and 1920s. I think it mainly arises in Russia during the, the, the first decade of the 20th century, probably around the 1905 revolution and so on. And I think probably the key figure is is Vladimir Lenin. And he, one of the fo- focal points of the old left was anti-imperialism. I think, was it Lenin, the 1917 book that you cite, Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism. So that became the party line to be anti-imperialist. If you're on the left, you had to be anti-imperialist. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, the the way it developed was actually kind of interesting. It was almost organic in a sense. So so Marx's work, which is is I suppose not very extensive in its public published form, but the the old uh, the old left and the new left actually have an obsession with reading everything Marx wrote, uh, letters, everything, and that, and that really does go back to Lenin and so on. I don't think he had all the letters, but he. They tried to read everything. They, they saw him as kind of a, a demigod, I suppose. And Marx didn't write a great deal on what we would call foreign policy, I suppose, or geopolitics. Marx was mainly focused on internal capital development of a country. He does in, in a few passages, I think there's one part of the Das Kapital that has some discussion of uh, foreign investment and so on related to India and the cotton mills. But it, it, it's not really dealt with that much. He's mainly looking at, say, the conditions in England at the time when he was writing, and of course the conditions for revolution within England, what happens by the early 20th century is that capitalism takes on a much more, I guess, we would call it globalized 
shape. Now, it's not globalization as we would understand it today, because it's based on the British imperial system, basically, not exclusively, but mainly, and a few other smaller competing imperial systems. But it was a form of globalization. And so what so Lenin was writing at a time when they needed to explain both this new form of capitalism, he called it the highest form of capitalism, of course, but also that kind of meshed with the need for the nascent communist movement to articulate what we would call a foreign policy. So the throughout the 20s, 30s, there's a derision of any kind of anti-Soviet foreign policy as imperialist. In fact, it became a kind of general term of abuse, imperialist. Yeah, I mean, the the Soviet Union was a funny entity because it wasn't really a country, right? And it wasn't really an, an empire in the normal sense. So uh, the British Empire, it's pretty clear the British are at the helm, right? So the British could talk about British interests in India, in the Indian Raj, for example. And there wouldn't be much of a contradiction there. A country without an empire, can, like maybe America at the time, could just talk about its own interest. But the Soviet Union, as it developed, needed to talk about its foreign policy, basically. But it, it, couldn't, it couldn't, without contradicting itself, if it portrayed itself as some sort of an empire, that was no good. It could talk about revolutions in other countries, but that, I suppose, hit up against a wall insofar as how much should the Soviet Union be influencing the revolution as it progresses in the world and so on. So I think the easiest way for them to discuss what we would call the foreign policy of the Soviet Union was to associate the enemies of the Soviet Union as being the unreformed, unreconstructed imperialism of the sort that Lenin described in 1917, the highest form of capitalism, but also what they would have considered the last form of capitalism. And this also gave them a great, I mean, for want of a better term, great shtick when they went to underdeveloped countries and were able to talk to revolutionaries there and tell them that their problem was Western imperialist domination or influence. And all then they had to do was sign up to Comintern, to the Communist International, uh, and they could defeat that Western imperialism and become you know, a, a, a better country for it. Of course, what that meant in practice was either be stitched directly into the Soviet Union or enter the Soviet sphere of influence. For the British, a hard leftist and American and throughout Europe, the great crisis, as you describe it, is Hungary, 1956. When the Soviet tanks clank their way into Budapest, it becomes very difficult for Western leftists to cleave to this notion that the Soviet Union is the great anti-imperialist power, since the tanks really obviously represented Russian imperialism. Well, yeah, that's right. I mean, up until then, I guess it should be stated, I'm, I'm sure some people know this, but it really can't be overstated how much control, centralized control, the, the, the Kremlin, Moscow had on the international communist movement up until the mid-1950s. I mean, they really did. Communist parties were set up all in every country around the world, most countries around the world, and they would literally get direct orders on what party line to take on various, various uh, issues from Moscow, all caged in terms of what we've talked about, the imperialist line. But when the tanks rolled into Budapest in 1956 and crushed what was effectively sort of a student revolution in a sense that really put off a lot of uh, a lot of western leftists it also came just on the back of khrushchev's secret speech denouncing the stalinist era 
and its crimes, which I think in retrospect, although maybe it's slightly controversial, but I think that's when communism started to start, started to actually lose confidence in itself. I, I know it's that's generally thought of as the Brezhnev era, but I don't think after the Khrushchev secret speech, there's as much zeal about spreading communism abroad. I, I think prior to that, they really were trying to spread the revolution. And after that, it became sort of a almost a real politic foreign policy, in a sense, trying to balance its influence against America and various regions and so on. So the, the new left then pivots, as you describe in your piece, and it preserves the anti-imperialist notion, but it it becomes a kind of, um, there's a sort of romanticism about all of the new possibilities that are aborning in the third world. You get kind of Rousseau's noble savage combined with leftist politics. <laughs> Cuba, I remember, I think Cuba, that became a everybody's or, or Parisian student activists who were Maoists. I had never understood that, but you really helped me understand that they were Maoists because China was the other, to use that terminology, the non-Western other, and it gave them some sort of hope that there could be some alternative to the Western system. I think the key to understand about the new left, especially, is that they're demographically different from the old left. The old left tend to be truly working class organizations, not always headed up by working class people. They were generally, um, the heads of these organizations were people like Lenin and Stalin. These would have been probably lower middle to middle class people who would have gone on to fairly, you know, standard roles in society. Stalin famously almost joined the priesthood you know, low-level clerks. These were the jobs these guys were, were often being, you know, that, that was the social class they came from, and their alternative was revolution. So they they were a little bit more hardened. The, the, these were pretty hardened people. They engaged in, in terrorist acts. They were regularly assailed by the police. They sp- a lot of them spent time in jail, a lot of time in jail of the early communists. Whereas the new left, the demographic it comes from, are, are kind of the upwardly mobile middle class these are students these are student radicals and so on and yes as you and and so that they're naturally going to gravitate to a different form of politics frankly they don't want to spend 10 years in jail as you know the head of the italian (laughs) communist party antonio gramsci did and wrote his prison notebooks and everything in there they don't want to do that they 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 want to spend maybe a, a a friday night in a jail cell after a protest so that they can tell their friends at the next socialist meeting, but they don't want to spend 10 years in jail. Now, now there were notable exceptions to this, the weather, weather underground and so on got violent and the Bader Meinhof as well in, in Germany and the Red Brigades in Italy. But I think the general constituency was, was these college students. And yes, they, they, they looked to the exotic other. They saw that if you want to I mean, maybe we, we wouldn't call Russia a Western culture, but it's a Christian culture. You know, we recognize ourselves in Dostoevsky or Tolstoy or anything like that. It is part of kind of, you know, the European heritage, broadly speaking, the Christian heritage. And they saw some, they saw the revolution go wrong there. So then they had to turn to these more exotic lo- locales. And yes, some of them were, were, were places in Latin America like Cuba, but I you highlighted it well. I, I think the most interesting movement in the 60s was actually the French Maoists. And it wasn't just French. You, you got these in America as well, but it was mainly in France. It was mainly in Paris. And they mm-hmm. really they really saw something very exotic in the Chinese communist model. Of course, it turned out to be a complete 
illusion and the Cultural Revolution was really just a an attempt by Mao to solidify power, much in the same way as Stalin did with the purges in the 1930s, although the dynamics were different. So that was quite disillusioning to them, I think. Although there are still a few around that are pretty, pretty popular um, new left philosophers who still refer to themselves as Maoists, so still kind of exists. What really helped me was you you discuss okay so we got these disappointments the soviet union doesn't turn out to be the new you know the agent of the great the utopian future hungary really and also i think was it marcuse says that the soviet union is nothing but state capitalism it's all the same system you know the the West one and the, the Cold War was a conflict between the same system. So we get these exotic possibilities in the third world. But what really comes out by the time you get to the post-Cold War era, the 90s and the aughts, is the, is the new, new left, if I would be permitted that formulation, it really is becomes pretty just clearly anti-Western. In other words, the greatest curse on the globe is the prosperous, smug, complacent, bourgeois West. And so you, you get Robert Brenner, you cite Giovanni Arihi. These are leftist economic thinkers who say that the U.S.-led global order is doomed, and they think, hooray for the demise of the dominance of the West. Is that fair to characterization of what really kind of is undermining that body of literature? Yeah, I mean, I, I, we wouldn't want to skip over the anti-Western nature of the New Left. Uh, Marcuse is kind of a key figure in that. I mean, that's the kind of the New Left in the 1960s was what what inspired kind of like Jane Fonda to go to the North Vietnam, you know, Hanoi Jane or whatever it was called. That really was anti-Western. But the anti-Western feeling in that was, I guess, channeled into what they would have considered revolutionary movements in the Third World. So that would have been the Viet Cong in the case of Jane Fonda. It was also the, the Sandinista rebels during the Contra War in Nicaragua. That, that was kind of the view. But I think by the 90s, what you, you're referring to as the new, new left, which probably isn't a terrible term for it, that was, I think, uh, born out of the disappointment of the Third World Revolution. So the new left was definitely anti-Western. It was very anti-Western. And although they were skeptical of the Soviet Union, I think they were more supportive of the Soviet Union than they were the West. But, but I think the 90s was, was the point of disillusion. And as you say, these new thinkers emerge, uh, Arrighi and Brenner, who are actually really interesting writers. Do you think there's a lot to what they have to say about the weaknesses of the U.S.-led global system? Well, I think, as we'll talk about hopefully in a moment, I think in retrospect, they were the most perspicuous analysts of geopolitical shifts in the past 30 years. But just to say how I think they kind of came about. So obviously in the, uh, in the 90s, the Cold War had ended. The Soviet Union was gone. Third world revolutions weren't happening very much anymore. There were one or two. There was um, a small uprising in, by the Zapatistas in Mexico. And there was, of course, Hugo Chavez, who um, that, was, that was a real revolution in a sense. But, you know, I, the enthusiasm wasn't there, I don't think, as much. And so the analysis pivoted to looking at this unipolar American world order and saying, what are the weak points and, and how long will it be until it collapses? So it was, a more, it was a more nihilistic vision, I guess, kind of starved of their alternative reality in Castro's Cuba, Mao's China, or even uh, the Sandinista Nicaragua. 
they turned to a sort of nihilism in a sense and, and purely looked at the current system and tried to figure out how it was going to self-destruct. But yes, as you alluded to, I think, I think they were onto something. Well, what, 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 what do you think they got right about the instability or weaknesses of the U.S.-led post-Cold War system? So I suppose it's worth taking the two works in order because one is built on the other. So the first is by Robert Brenner, who's an, econ- an economic historian, a Marxist economic historian. I think he wrote the first, The Economics of Global Turbulence, first as a, um, a very long essay, a special report, I think they called it, in the New Left Review, in the late 1990s. And Robert Brenner was pointing to some pretty severe imbalances that had, taken, that had uh, built up in the Western economies since the 1970s. Now, Robert Brenner's work wasn't actually completely unique. There were actually Keynesian economists who weren't radicals pointing out some of these, but it was all technical work and, and no one really read it. Brenner, Brenner communicated it well and he got an audience with it. And, and the imbalances that he was concerned with were, were effectively what we in retrospect today recognize as the hollowing out of the manufacturing sectors in in much of the, uh, definitely in the Anglo world and in some of the European world. So the decline of of American manufacturing, its its shipment abroad. Brenner points out that the that this decline predated China. That actually it started in the seventies with the competition from the Japanese and the Germans, and then after that with the South Koreans as well. So this had been a long ongoing process. Britain obviously experienced this much more rapidly even than the than the United States. So this gave rise, rise basically to very large trade deficits on the part of many uh, Western economies, most notably the US and the UK. And Arrighi kind of picks up from there. So, so Brenner, Brenner, oh, sorry, then Brenner kind of ties that then to the, to the financial instability that we, that we experienced in the 2000s. So that in order to prop up these economies that had so much um, stuff being made abroad, credit bubbles had to inflate and deflate. We got what he called economics of global turbulence. And, and that was a very good explanation. I, it, it's not the most precise. I mean, I am an economist and I, I, it's not the most precise explanation, but in its, in, in its basic form, it is, is, it is effectively correct. And I think basically then, then Giovanni Arrighi followed on from that in a sense. He looked at it from a more positive point of view. So Brenner had, had well kind of laid out the potential collapse of the system. And Giovanni Arrighi said, well, what would, what would move to take its place? And he published this book called Adam Smith in Beijing, in which he envisaged a, a new Chinese. What a great title. It is a great title. Well, the, 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 the idea behind it, actually, just, just to be quite specific, since we are talking about leftist ideas, is that he wanted to resurrect the ideas of Adam Smith in the Marxist canon. So it was interesting theoretically and so on as well. So he, he basically, um, he thought that, that China was developing a new form of economic system that looks quite similar, some mix between capitalism and state. And that that system would then be used to pull the peripheral nations, what we would call, we would have called during the Cold War, the Third World, pull those nations together into a, a formal or informal economic alliance to challenge the Western economic alliance that had been dominant up until that point. And I think in the wake of the Ukraine war and the rise of the BRICS, the formation of a, a new, the, the integration of new countries into the BRICS, that there's a lot of credibility in that idea. Yeah, we see the Saudi-Chinese detente that's ongoing would suggest. But I think what's interesting here is that in your piece, you say, well, there's a kind of 
this leftist analysis you think has a lot to it. There's a lot of it's, it's very perspicuous. But what's interesting is that it's hooray for the demise of the hegemony of the West. Meanwhile, as events unfold over recent years, and certainly over the last year, the we get a geopolitical people's framing of the Ukraine war is the the wonderful open society versus the evil closed society. And the rainbow flag is the flag of the open society. You know, so we're told that in Moscow, sexual minorities, so-called sexual minorities are discriminated against and we're fighting in Ukraine and we're supporting the Ukrainians in a fight for LGBT rights. And our embassies fly, fly the rainbow flag. I, I just found it really fascinating as you drew this to a close. It was, it was very persuasive to me that the left is a kind of in a weird bind. On the one hand, you know, the new left was anti-Western. New, the new, new left, you know, they want the system to collapse. On the other hand, the system, scare quotes around system, is the indispensable agent of the cultural revolution that the left supports. Sorry to be so long-winded. No, but it's, I mean, it's true. So, so this is actually quite a recent development. I mean, I mean the, the fact that the Western-led order is now, in some sense, as you say, the vanguard of a cultural revolution is is a recent development. I mean, when would you trace it to? Maybe the second term of Barack Obama? It's 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 not a very recent development. So it has caught everybody off guard. I think the Ukraine war was extremely fascinating. I mean, as I say in the piece, every other time there was a war that that involved the West in any way, the 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 left's instinct was to defend the other side, was to rush to the aid of the enemy, as some critics. Well, it's a kind of, you know, our war in Iraq was an imperialist war. I mean, these are, as you point out, tropes that were developed at the beginning of the 20th century. And it was kind of a hundred year run of using, using those terms. But now the West is defending against Russian imperialism. I mean, it's a kind of funny thing the way it's turned around. But I, but I'd say, I'd say even when a war wasn't easy to fit into the imperialist frame. So take Desert Storm, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, Saddam Hussein clearly invaded Kuwait. And, but the left still found a way to... Now, it wasn't a, a, an enthusiastic support of Saddam and Desert Storm, but the left found a way. They said, you know, I think their line was basically, we've been mi- messing around in the Middle East since the British Empire, and we've created all these divisions and blah, 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 right? So even, even when there was kind of aggression from a non-Western entity that provoked a Western response, as was definitely the case in, in Kuwait, they still kind of managed to defend the the other guy. And and the Ukraine war, I think, has shown a massive split on the left. And it's fascinating. And, and, and I'll say as well, knowing kind of the factions on the left and so on, it's across factions. There's no, there's no predicting if a lefty is pro-Ukraine or pro-Russian. I, I, maybe that's the wrong way of phrasing it, but no, I know what you mean. But really, it's a it's a tension between those who who see the the they that who see the, the whatever we want to call the American led system capitalist. I guess if you're a leftist, you want to see that weakened, um, and you want to see some alternatives to its hegemony, combined with the with the fact that, as you point out, on the other side. There's a real sense in which the new left triumphed culturally in the West. So the West is its power base. 
that's the other component of the problem. That is exactly why the left is finding it so hard to take a unified position on the Ukraine war, because it's now quite clear that their cultural project has got much more roots in, in Western institutions than anywhere else. It has no roots anywhere else. It's it, China, China and Russia are are nationalist countries. I, and I know some people will say, oh, well, China is still a communist country. That is, that's a debate, okay? It definitely still is a communist party. But its ideology can't be anything other than some sort of conservative Chinese nationalism. It's even integrating aspects of Confucianism into its ideology now and, and backrooming a lot of the more controversial aspects of Marxism. So they're, they're looking at these countries that are, are conservative nationalists. In the case of Russia, it's much more obvious because they've taken a kind of Eastern Orthodox Christian um, ideology as the kind of state state ideology. But even in China, it's it's fairly obvious we have a fairly conservative nationalist country. So they're looking at, at, at their former champion states, which used to be, you know, the Cultural Revolution and the Soviet Union. And these now look like like religious nationalists in, in Russia, although, you know, how much of that is ideology and how much of it's real is open to question. And then this kind of um, I, I think with China, they're just completely thrown for a loop. I don't think they even know what to make of China. I, I cite one of the most popular leftist, new, new new leftist philosophers, Slavoj Žižek, in the, in the piece dealing with uh, Huang Huning, who's, the, who's a conservative nationalist Chinese philosopher who's not remotely a Marxist in any way. And he praises them, but they, they, have, no, they have nothing in common. It's very Yeah, because uh, Huning is, he, before he went into silence, as um, you know, a member of the inner circle in China, the stuff he wrote was highly critical of what he saw as the decadence of the West that is rooted precisely in the rainbow flag, if you want to use that as a symbol. And you, as you conclude, that the paradox or the dead end is this, as a symbol of the global future, this is you writing, the rainbow flag was always dependent on the superordinate power of the American-led system. And so the, I guess the dead end is the left wants to promote the ambitions of the rainbow flag and what it represents, while at the same time wants to undermine or critique the power of the American-led Western system. Yeah, I don't... Okay, so let's end with a prediction. Where do they go from here? As you say, though, it's a dead end. I I think... I, I quote at the end of that essay, uh, Hegel. It's, it's kind of tongue-in-cheek because the left love to quote Hegel. <laughs> And it's this, it's this quote, which is a great one. I'm not a huge Hegel fan, but it's the owl of Minerva flies at dusk, you know, or spreads its wings and flies at dusk. And what it means is that you, which is, an in, I think, an in, genuine insight by Hegel, that you can only really understand a historical process when it's reached its end point. It's only when the battle is over that you can assess the battle. And I think, I think, I honestly think the the left, the left that started with Marx, at least, maybe even with the French Revolution, has reached its terminus point now. It, it, it's at a point now where the, the civilization that it spent uh, generations critiquing is more in line with its own thinking than anything else. The foreign powers that it used to look to as an alternative look like look more and more like the reactionaries that they'd been fighting in their own countries for years and years and years. So what exactly do they do from here? I mean, there, there seem to me three choices. They could either become conservative nationalists, supporters of Russia and China and the BRICS order, or they could become leftist neoconservatives supporting the, the 
rainbow flag foreign policy, or they can collapse. And I think the most likely outcome is that they collapse. The the very embrace of their cultural ideas is probably is probably the kind of uh, funeral march of the movement. I'm persuaded. It is a very paradoxical and almost an impossible situation to be an anti-establishment leftist when you own and run all the establishment institutions, which is where we are now. Uh, absolutely. I mean, domestically, not just in terms of foreign policy. And I think it's a kind of paradox of the baby boomers. You know, they, they, they didn't want to sell out. They didn't want to be part of the establishment, but they are the establishment. The, the, the one thing I'd say, though, is, and just because it is interesting, that, that I do think something really unique is happening here. There have always been instances where the revolutionaries got control over the establishment, right? That's what happened in the French Revolution. That's what happened in the Russian Revolution. And that's what happened in, in the Sandinista Revolution in Nicaragua or, or the Maoists in China or what, what have you. But I think, I think this is a much, much more deeper crisis because what tended to happen when they got control was there'd be a period of almost reaction within the leftist organization. So you got Napoleon out of the French Revolution or you got Stalin out of the uh, Soviet Union who, who governed kind of as a conservative nationalist, as brutal and communist as he was. He got rid of all the all the all the sexual revolutionary stuff from the Leninist era and so on. There's a lot written about this now, and it's very interesting. But I don't think I I think what's happening now is fundamentally different because it's not that the revolution has succeeded. There hasn't been a takeover of the of the DC institutions or of of the European institutions by the left. It's that these these institutions have started to mirror the ideology, and I think that's something wholly different from the left taking over and, and, and solidifying, because then they can just rebel against themselves, but there's no themselves to rebel against anymore. It's very odd. Well, thank you so much for this great piece and, and for your other contributions of First Things. And a reminder to listeners to subscribe to First Things magazine. We, I look forward to your next, your next piece, Philip. Thank you very much, Rusty. Thanks for having me.